1: Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It's Sunday, December 30th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. The government shutdown drags on as the new year approaches, and Democrats prepare to assume control of the House of Representatives. Washington was at a standstill last week with the Senate in session for all of four minutes on Thursday. Actually, two and a half if you don't count the prayer.
2: The Senate stands adjourned.
1: President Trump called off his holiday travel and instead made his first trip to a war zone, visiting troops in Iraq.
3: America shouldn't
1: be doing the fighting for every nation on earth. Meanwhile, Republicans and Democrats remain at odds over funding a border wall. And President Trump is raising the stakes, threatening to shut down the entire southern border. His acting chief of staff justified this potentially costly move.
4: All options are on the table. What, listen, it's the only way we can get the Democrats' attention.
1: Washington's dysfunction is rocking Wall Street. Blue chip stocks are on track for their worst December since the Great Depression. We'll talk with Alabama Republican Senator Richard Shelby, chairman of the powerful Appropriations Committee. His fellow committee member, Montana Senator John Tester, also joins us to discuss Democrats' demands. And in these turbulent times, we turn to a Face the Nation tradition, a historian's roundtable reflecting on the year gone by and what lies ahead for 2019. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It's day nine of the shutdown with no end in sight. There were long lines this week outside Smithsonian Museum locations, all 19 of which are likely to close January 2nd. Some 420,000 federal employees worked this week and will not receive pay for their time until the shutdown ends, while another 380,000 stayed home with no guarantee of back pay. Joining us now from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is Republican Senator Richard Shelby. He's one of the most powerful groups in Congress. He runs the Appropriations Committee. Senator Shelby and his fellow members control government spending. Senator, welcome to Face the Nation. Thank you. Sir, 47 percent of Americans blame the president for the shutdown. 33 percent blame Democrats, according to the latest Reuters poll. Where do negotiations stand?
3: Our negotiations are at an impasse at the moment. I wish it were not so. Uh, but we've got to move away from the blame game, uh, the blaming the president, blaming the Democrats, uh, Pelosi and Schumer and others, and get back to doing what we're sent there to do, to fund the government. That's been my... Mandate—that's what we've been working hard this year in a bipartisan way on the Appropriations Committee. Senator Leahy, uh, the senator from Vermont, is the ranking a Democrat on the committee. I believe if we, people would help us along, would do what we did with the seventy-five percent that we funded to the government, funded all the sooner, the better.
1: Have you spoken with the president or the White House since the shutdown began last Saturday?
3: I, I uh, had. Uh, Uh, lunch with the president and the vice president last Saturday and uh, we talked at length about it uh, how to bring it to a close, how to fund the government and the president made some proposals through the vice president. I made some proposals to Senator Schumer uh, uh, the night before but right now uh, we're at a standoff and I think that's not good for the Senate, the House or America. We can do better, and we've got to figure out a way, Margaret, to get to yes. Uh, if we blame each other, this could last a long, long time.
1: Why is the Democrats' offer to continue current levels of $1.3 billion in border security? Why is that not enough?
3: Well, the president uh, wants more. hes uh, I tried to work a deal uh, earlier on where he would get two and a half a billion this year and two and a half next year, trying to have a compromise. That didn't work out. I do believe that the president would like to work TS. I think Senator Schumer, who I've worked with for years, uh, would like to fund the government. It's a question, when do we get off the blame game and we get to serious negotiations? At the end of the day, all of this will end, we don't know when, in negotiations. Uh, It's not a question of who wins or loses, nobody's going to win this kind of game, nobody wins in a shutdown, uh, we all lose, and we kind of look silly.
1: The president uh, set off some tweets this weekend uh, specifically blaming Democrats for the deaths of children or others at the border. He said they're strictly the fault of the Democrats. Do you agree with the president, and what does language like that do to the negotiation you say you're trying to get going?
3: Well, whether it's the president uh, uh, tweeting and uh, blaming somebody or blaming the Democrats, or whether it's the Democrats blaming the president, uh, it's brought us to the impasse that we are today. Uh, I found out long ago, working in the Senate on the Appropriations Committee, that we've got to find out what do the Democrats really want here, when do they want it, and can we work with them to at least meet them halfway. I believe the president does not want a shutdown. Uh, I think we, he wants to secure the borders, which he should. And we should help him do that. But there are a lot of ways to do it. Uh, Sometimes names uh, get in the way of good work.
1: Do I understand you saying there that you disagree with the president, that Democrats aren't to blame for the deaths of these children?
3: No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. Who is to blame? I said that uh, the blame game, I didn't say, ma'am. I just said that. If we're going to blame each other, Democrats are going to blame Trump for this, and Trump's going to blame the Democrats for this. We're getting nowhere. What we're trying to do is try to work to, yes, to fund the government, to do our job, to get on to bigger things.
1: House Democrats take control uh, January 3rd, this Thursday. They say they're going to reopen the government or try to do so. Will Senate Republicans send any kind of bill to the president's desk that uh, does not include border wall funding?
3: Uh, I think Senator McConnell, our leader, has already uh, addressed that, That said that he would not even take up the bill until he found some compromise that the president would agree to sign. So we're going to be at an impasse. That would be probably an empty gesture, but that goes on in Washington every day.
1: The outgoing chief of staff, John Kelly, uh, recently gave an interview to the L.A. Times. Uh, He said a number of things, including that it's not a border wall that the president's asking for. But he also said that if you actually want to stop illegal immigration, you need to stop U.S. demand for drugs and expand economic opportunity in Central America. That seems to contradict what the president said he might do, which is cut off aid to some of those impoverished countries that migrants are coming from. Do you agree with the president? Would Congress even consider cutting off this kind of aid as he's threatening to do?
3: Well, I don't know yet. Uh, the president uh, speaks for himself, and he does speak uh, uh, for a lot of the nation, because he is the president. But my goal is to secure the borders. Uh, we have, uh, we, we're have we one of the great nations of the world that don't secure the borders. Uh, Democrats and Republicans have worked together toward that end before. It's going to take us working together to get it done. And that's what I want to do as chairman of the Appropriation Committee, to reach out to the Democrats, get the president on board, get the Democrats on board, and let's move on and quit fighting and quit blaming each other.
1: But do you see room for giving Democrats something they're asking for, and that in the past the president has said he supported, which is an offer that would include something like protections for so-called DREAMers?
3: I think that uh, uh, that probably will be discussed in other things, too. I think to work an agreement in politics after uh, January the 3rd, when the Democrats take control of the House, the political equation will change. Uh, You'll have a Democratic House, a Republican president, and a Republican Senate. So we're going to have to negotiate. I think that uh, we ought to see what do the Democrats really want can we do it and can we reach there? And we got to show them what we want is to secure the borders.
1: Sir, I know you spent a a long time on the banking committee, Uh, and and so I want to ask you, because uh, this government shutdown is weighing on the financial markets, along with some unusual comments from the Treasury Secretary uh, about uh, the health of the credit markets. Uh, You also had the president publicly criticizing uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Can you reassure Wall Street when it opens tomorrow that there's not a reason to be concerned?
3: Well, we're all concerned about the economy. The economy's been very good. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably the best economy I've seen in years and years, if not in my lifetime. But uh, the Federal Reserve is the backbone, uh, is the bedrock of our financial system. It's set up to be independent. I don't believe blaming the Federal Reserve for this or that. Well, whoever the president or our congressman or senator is uh, helps matters. Uh, the president cannot fire the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, except for cause. I think uh, Chairman Powell, myself, is doing a good job. All right.
1: Senator Shelby, thank you for joining us. And we, you've got some work cut out for you. Thank you. We turn now to Montana Democratic Senator John Tester, another member of the committee in charge of government spending. He's also one of only two moderate Democrats to win re-election in a reliable reliably red state. Uh, Good morning to you, Senator.
5: It's great to be here, Margaret. Thank you.
1: Uh, Your colleague, Senator Shelby said negotiations are at an impasse and they need to find out what Democrats want and when. As the Democrat here, what can you explain?
5: Well, first of all, Margaret, I would just say that, you know, we passed a bill a couple, of years, a couple of weeks ago to keep, uh, keep the government open, and the House refused to take it up. I think that the fact we're at a government shutdown is uh, nothing short of ridiculous. I think that Senator Shelby and others are, are spot on. We need to sit down and, and, and pound out a deal. I think that that agreement that the, the Senate passed in a bipartisan way mm-hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago would have given us the opportunity to uh, come to an agreement. The problem is, is, is that the president has 1.3 billion dollars from last year for, for border security. Actually, 21 billion for border security, uh, 1.3 for the wall that he has spent very, very little of. And he says he needs more. Yeah, and he says yet yeah, he needs more. Yet there's no plan to go uh, where the money, how the money is going to be spent, or any analysis on what's most effective to secure the border. Bottom line is, uh, Margaret is, is that I don't. Talk to anybody in the Senate that doesn't want secure borders. It's just how the money is going to be spent. And if the president wants to continue to take a campaign promise that he made, which is to have Mexico pay for a wall and say, no, the, the rules have changed. Now we're still going to build a wall, but we're going to have the American taxpayer pay for it. We're going to use the American taxpayer like an ATM machine. That's not the right direction to go.
1: The White House says it's Democrats who walked away from the table. Uh, you heard Senator Shelby say there there was an offer uh, that he put forward of $2.5 billion this year, $2.5 billion next year. What happened to that?
5: Well, I think that uh, that, that deal never got past leadership. But, but what did happen this last year is the president asked for $1.6 billion in his budget proposal for this next year. The Appropriations Committee, which Senator Shelby chairs and Senator Leahy is a ranking member of, agreed to that. In a bipartisan way. Senator Shelby voted for it. Senator McConnell voted for it. The president moved the goalposts and said, no, nope, now I want $5 billion.
1: Well, and they've come down to around two. Why can't Democrats come up from 1.3?
5: Well, I think that that's negotiations that need to be done between leadership, uh, between Senator Shelby, Senator Leahy and others, Mm -hmm. and move forth. But the big thing is, is that how's the money going to be spent? What's the most effective way to secure that southern border? And that's really what's important here. I think we can do it with technology and manpower and much more effectively than, than with a wall.
1: You heard Senator Shelby say there that he thinks probably you're going to have to talk about things that Democrats have said they've wanted, including protections for dreamers. Is that the kind of sweetener that would get Democrats to reconsider?
5: Oh, I think we've been here before i was I was in the room when the president said if the, if if Congress passes something, i'm going to sign it, and mm-hmm. then Uh, he moved back away from that. And so I think ultimately, in the end, we do need comprehensive immigration reform. There's no doubt about that, Mm -hmm. Margaret. But but in the end, we need to know what the president wants and hopefully he'll stick to it. When we passed the bipartisan funding to go to the 1st of February a couple weeks ago, the president said he was going to sign it. And then, after we passed it, he said he wasn't going to sign it. Uh, We need some predictability.
1: The president said, of those two migrant children who've died in U.S. custody, that it's Democrats' fault. Uh, Essentially, he's arguing that there's incentives that are in U.S. law that encourage people to cross and take this really dangerous migration route. How do you respond to that?
5: Well, I respond to the fact that we need comprehensive immigration reform that needs to be there for a while. I think it's everybody's fault. This is unacceptable. And and the bottom line is is that if we're able to get comprehensive immigration reform Mm -hmm. done, which is going to require some leadership from the White House, too, Mm -hmm. um, then I think that we will see uh, things settle down in the southern border in a big, big way.
1: Is there a cost for Democrats to appear to work with the president?
5: No, I think uh, what what Democrats need to do is they need to work for the country and make sure that not only the southern border, but the northern border is secure, make sure that we have the ability on the ports to be able to screen every vehicle coming across to make sure that drugs don't come into this country. And I think that if we're able to get a plan to be able to do that, which I Mm -hmm. don't think is that hard to do, uh, I think Democrats and Republicans can work together to, to make sure that we have a secure border and, and keep this country safe.
1: When we introduced you, I pointed out that you were one of uh, only two Democratic senators to get reelected in the, in the state that the president took by double digits back in 2016. And the president came to Montana and personally uh, campaigned against you. Yeah. H- how, do, how do you take your win and advise other democrats on how to win states in the west and midwest.
5: I don't look like your basic democrat, Margaret, and uh, we still farm, my wife and I still farm, we still believe in the citizen legislature model. Uh, we go everywhere in the state, I go everywhere in the state, and I listen to Montanans, whether it's in conservative areas or liberal areas, and take those ideas back to Washington DC and put them into action. I think it's more of a, of a function of of listening and going everywhere. I don't believe in models that say you just knock on this door, you just go to this community, and you'll get elected. I think you go everywhere and you listen to everybody. Everybody's got ideas. Some of them are great and take those great ideas back to Washington, D.C., and that's how we won.
1: In saying that, though, are you implying that Democrats have gotten out of touch with the part of of the country you're from? I
5: think all politicians have gotten out of touch. um, In fact, that they just go to certain places where they think they can get enough votes to win. I think that what makes this country great is a Washington, D.C. that works for everybody and works for this country. And in order to do that, you've got to go everywhere and listen to everybody's concerns and needs and go back and try to find solutions.
1: You said you're uh, one of the few working farmers still in the Senate, so I want to ask you uh, about the impact of the trade war. The the, the White House uh, put together the second bailout package for American farmers uh, because of some of the impact of of the trade war. What has been the impact you've seen in your state, and and are people questioning their support for the president because
5: of it? Well, uh, margins in production agriculture are always really narrow, and so when you get a situation where you start to lose export markets, which is what has happened with uh, with this trade war. You end up lowering prices at the farm gate. You have more place, more farms that potentially go into um, a situation where they're not solvent anymore and bankruptcy. Um, the trade war has to end. Uh, we need those foreign markets. Uh, I personally have about 40% of my crop still on the farm from 2017 because of the trade war. Uh, most folks can't stand that. In fact, after about 18 months, they'll start going broke. We need those markets. Uh, We need to hold China accountable, but we need the markets, and we need to move forward. There are other ways to put pressure on China other than using the family farmer, the American farmer, as a tool. Uh, For instance, use the financial system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll bring them to to the table much more quickly, I believe, and it won't put folks uh, in rural America out of business. And I think that if this continues, we'll see more farms go broke, and we'll see uh, rural America uh, further... uh, further be be further diminished
1: senator tester thank you for coming on the show Margaret, it's Good to have you here you. in person we'll be back with a lot more face the nation in a moment don't go away
4: what's your next adventure everyone deserves a chance to do what they love pacific life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones plans change over time and your financial solutions can too Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love, or visit www.pacificlife.com.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. In 2018, the Catholic Church in the United States was again consumed with controversy over charges of sexual abuse by priests and allegations of cover-ups in the church hierarchy. In Pennsylvania, Illinois, and 10 other states, law enforcement agencies are investigating claims against the church, some dating back decades. It's a scandal that has shaken faith in a trusted institution, and the impact is not confined to our borders, as CBS News correspondent Seth Doan reports from Rome.
6: Scandals are swirling ever closer to Pope Francis. This fall, he removed two cardinals from his hand-picked advisory group, both implicated in sex abuse cases. And in his Christmas address to church leaders, Francis called on
3: abuser priests to turn themselves in. The untouchables are not untouchable anymore. And and this uh, pertains also to bishops, to cardinals, and to
6: the pope himself. Hans Zollner is on the Pope's commission for the protection of minors. They're developing policies to combat abuse under a Pope accused of not doing enough. Day after day after day, it seems like there are new allegations, new accusations in new countries.
3: Yeah, but this shows that we are at the core of things. And this is, it is good and necessary that it happens. This is a good thing that all of this is coming out? Oh, yes, It, it is good in that sense that this has been brooding. Now it's in the open and now you can deal with it.
6: Before becoming Pope, Francis addressed the issue of clerical sex abuse in a book he co-authored in 2010, saying he knew of no cases in the diocese he oversaw in Argentina. But Beatriz Barela says that's not true. Her son Gabriel was abused by a priest in that diocese in 2002. She tried to see the man who'd later become Pope, but wasn't allowed. He knew of so many cases of sexual abuse of kids, she said, especially mine. Her son Gabriel, who was abused at age 15, said he'd felt guilty and ignored. He covered up cases of pedophilia, he alleged, adding he's only a pope of marketing. Before running the entire church, Francis was in charge of Argentina's bishops when they commissioned a parallel investigation into the case of Father Julio Cesar Graci, who'd been convicted of sex abuse. The study wound up on the desk of Judge Carlos Mahaicas.
3: I was surprised. It was a a
4: book in favor and and for for the the defense of Father Graci.
6: The church inquiry, bound like a book, sided with the predator priest, saying the victims were lying. But the appeals court was not swayed and upheld the priest's 15-year prison sentence. The pope admitted he'd made a mistake earlier this year by backing a Chilean bishop who was later found guilty of witnessing and ignoring abuse. And in August, things got personal when Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò claimed he'd warned Pope Francis in 2013 of the sexual misconduct of then-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. He said the Pope ignored that, allowing the Cardinal to continue to serve until this summer. You have allegations that the Pope has sided with predator priests. He has ignored victims of sex abuse. You have allegations that he himself may have covered up a sex abuser in the ranks. Isn't that alarming for someone running the Catholic Church?
3: I think he is, uh, as I said, he has had uh, an attitude that he expressed from the beginning that he was willing to listen to survivors. And he has started not only to listen to them but also to invite them to his house. He is somebody who is willing to learn. And I, I, I see this happening day by day. Zollner
6: acknowledged this institution, based behind these high Vatican walls, has a lot to learn about transparency and accountability. Seth Doan, CBS News, Rome.
1: The Pope is planning a February meeting at the Vatican with church leaders from around the world to discuss preventing clergy sex abuse and protecting children. We'll be right back.
6: Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices but in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans. Our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies...
1: Coming up in our next half hour, a face the nation tradition, our Historians' Roundtable, looking back at 2018 and head to the new year. They've got four books that shed light on how we got here and where we're going. Doris Kearns Goodwin, Michael Beschloss, Jill Lepore, and Peter Baker will join us. And we'll also have a conversation with the woman who has Bono's ear, Gail Smith, president and CEO of the One Campaign. We'll be right back with more. We turn now to one of our favorite holiday traditions here at Face the Nation. And this year, we're joined by historians and writers whose recent works give insight into how we came into these unpredictable times and where we might be headed next. Historian Michael Beschloss is the author of Presidents of War. Pulitzer Prize winner Doris Kearns Goodwin's latest book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. Peter Baker is a chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. He covers the current president as well as the three previous. He's a contributor to impeachment and American history. And Jill Lepore writes for The New Yorker and is the author of These Truths, A History of the United States. Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from history. But, Michael, you know, one of the things you constantly hear about where we are right now is we're looking at a president who believes history begins with him.
2: Well, the founders of this country, they really had the idea that what would distinguish us from England and the monarchies of Europe would be we would all know history. We would learn really quickly where generations of Americans earlier had gone wrong and where they had done well. And presidents maybe above all. Harry Truman said he couldn't understand how anyone could be president of the United States who did not know history. Truman always said... Not every reader will be a leader, but every leader has to be a reader.
1: But you write uh, as well, though, that in some ways the Founding Fathers probably put a bit too much power in the presidency.
2: They expected that the first president would be George Washington and every later president would be like him. As we've seen, not everyone turned out to be that way. But the thing the Founders worried about most of all was that presidents would try to grab too much power. And through history, that has sure turned out to be the case. One of the ways they've done that, which I've written about, is in wartime, because war, if you're looking for a president who gets more power and in some cases abuses power, war is the quickest way to do it. I think the founders would have been very worried about the fact that a president nowadays can get America involved in war almost single-handedly, and almost single-handedly overnight. And get us
1: out. And
2: get us out. Absolutely. I think if they came back today, they would feel that presidents nowadays have much too much power and they would feel that it's the job of every citizen to try to resist that.
1: Doris, because we're in such turbulent times, the idea of leadership, leadership qualities and uh, sort of the tone and tenor of what's communicated to the American public is something you've been looking at. How did you decide on the four presidents that you focused in on?
7: Well, they were the ones I knew the best. I'd lived with them for a long period of time. So I figured if I was going to look at them in a different way through leadership, that I wanted to know them already. But once I did it, it was a much greater adventure. It took me much longer. I thought, oh, this will be easy. I know these guys, the two Roosevelt's, Abraham Lincoln and LBJ. But I felt each time I finished a book that I was turning my old boyfriend away when I had to move (laughs) to the new guy. So I figured, I'll get them together and I can spend time with them. And what really became important was to see is there a family resemblance of leadership strengths that they exhibited. They were all the right person for the time. That's the interesting thing about what you're saying. Maybe the founders would feel that presidency was too powerful in wartime but if we hadn't had a powerful president like Abraham Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, if we hadn't had Teddy Roosevelt as a steward of the American people at the time of big companies swallowing up small companies, if we hadn't had FDR there at the time of the New Deal and the Great Depression they all took power. Lyndon Johnson took power to get the Civil Rights Bill through. But in each one of those cases, what I think saves us as a country, it's never just the leader. It's the movement that's underneath the leader. When they said to Abraham Lincoln, you're a liberator, he said, don't say that. um, It was the anti-slavery people that did it all. It was the progressive movement that underlay Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt. Without that settlement house movement and the social gospels, they couldn't have gotten through what they did. And, of course, without the civil rights movement, LBJ couldn't have gotten the civil rights bill or the voting rights. So
1: it's up to the people right now. JILL, you write a little bit about this sense of rootlessness, of of disorientation, of trying to define who we are right now as an American people.
8: Why did you dig into that? I do think there's a sense of political disequilibrium that we've been in really since 9-11 and I think that has coincided with technological disruption which sets skew the forms of political communication that we had grown to rely on. I think we need to pay a lot of attention to how who we are and who can speak politically is affected by technological change.
1: And that's why you in your book have weaved in some of the voices that have perhaps been a bit quieter in the history books but were quite loud at the time, particularly women
8: yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 funny. Sometimes people say, well, well you're kind of inserting this new attention to, right. to women and people of color. Uh, but of course, American history is driven by everybody. And uh, when you think about political history, if you confine your attention to the enfranchised or the office holders, you're going to have an incredibly narrow, all white male history for decades and decades and decades. And it's an incredible distortion. So it's really important to understand that the past is made up of many actors who have powers that are different from the franchise electorally uh, the moral crusade, which is the signature move of women engaged in reform during the abolitionist movement, the moral crusade the anti- that the anti-lynching movement is at the end of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century, the civil rights movement is a moral crusade. There's a lot that goes on politically in the United States outside of the act of suffrage.
1: Peter, you spend a good portion of your time in this book, Impeachment, and you're not advocating or taking a position on the premise <laughs> of it. You're explaining historically what this is. looked, Like in the past. Uh, And you focus in on the Clinton presidency. Right. What is it that is the chief lesson sort of learned from the last time this was attempted as we move into a Democratic controlled House and potential threats of impeachment?
9: Well, that's why we wrote this book, because it does seem to be a topic of conversation. And before we move into a new conflict of the type we've had before, we ought to understand how we got here, right? We understand how the framers thought of impeachment, why they put that phrase in the the Constitution, and the three examples that we focus on are Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton, because, of course, those are the three times it really came to a head. Uh, My chapter is on Bill Clinton, which is 20 years ago this month. Hard to imagine. It's been 20 years, but it has been. And I think one of the things you learn from that episode, as well as the other ones, is that you don't undertake this kind of thing lightly. Mm -hmm. This is meant to be the ultimate uh, resolution of accountability in our system. And you can't be done uh, on a partisan basis. Only if the president's party, at least significant parts of the president's party, agree that there is something important to be resolved here, will this actually uh, get to a conclusion that the advocates mean. So as the Democrats come in in January, they're faced with this conundrum. Much, much of their base would like to start impeachment proceedings against President Trump. They don't like him. They think he's committed some crimes. But they know at this point, given what we know at this moment, there aren't the votes there to convict in the Senate where you would mm-hmm. need 20, House, uh, 20 Senate Republicans to go along.
1: How painful has that process been historically to actually go through impeachment? What did it do to us as a country? Well, that's
9: exactly. It tends to rip us apart, right? We're already a polarized country. We don't need anybody's helped to make us more polarized at this point, but an impeachment battle would certainly take that uh, division that we already are, are undergoing and, and exacerbate it and bring it to a head. Democratic leaders are very wary of this. They did see what happened to their Republican predecessors in 1998 and 1999 that, in general, did not seem to work out well for them politically. Uh, and they're wary of a backlash if they pursue something or are perceived as overreaching. And yet their base, the liberal base, is very upset and agitated.
1: Michael, you know, we've seen this extraordinary uh, letter of resignation from Defense Secretary Mattis sure. uh, saying essentially in detail it's an issue of values for him when it comes to serving in the current administration. Fundamentally, he believes that we are breaking away from our alliances and that is painful to us, damaging to us as a nation.
2: Yes, that was something we have never seen before in American history, which is a Secretary of Defense Resigning in protest and anger, with basically a bill of indictment against a president, saying, "You do not believe President Trump and the things that you should, such as alliances, and we are dealing with Russia and China. You're not regarding them, you know, with sufficient uh, degree of vigor as competitors with us," and essentially saying, "You know, you and I do not believe in the same political ideals." That is something that you very rarely see, and I think the result is that members of Congress are now going to have to make a decision, which is if President Trump, let's say, decides to appoint a new Secretary of Defense who is more compliant, sort of, in the way that he appointed uh, Matt Whitaker to the Justice Department as an acting Attorney General, will you see people like Mitch McConnell stand up and say, I've been with you on an awful lot of other things, Mr. President, but this is too important. We will not confirm someone like that.
1: We're going to take a quick break and come back. We'll be back in a moment with more from our historian's panel.
0: I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, noo mcom slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom.
1: We're back now with our panel of historians. Doris, how do we understand right now this idea of what it means to be an American? It seems like we're sort of arguing about it amongst ourselves these days. I think we have to remember that this
7: country was founded on a set of ideals And it's not just a place. And that's what's so special with us. When you think about the Declaration of Independence, you think about the idea that all men were created equal and the founding fathers who wanted us to be something different, a beacon of hope to other nations at large. I think we just have to instill that. I know it sounds so simple sometimes to say civic education needs Mm -hmm. to be restored. But when we were young, we used to sing these songs. We used to read about Mm -hmm. the government and we used to think about what the ideals were. And I think as a nation right now, that's what's going to bind us together still, however different we are. What has
1: disrupted that? What has changed that?
7: Well, I don't fully understand the partisanship, to be honest. I mean, it's been going on for a period of time, and it's people from one part of the country not feeling good about the people in the rural area, feeling bad about the cities. It's what happened at the turn of the 20th century when it was a disruptive economy. You had the Industrial Revolution. You had a gap between the rich and the poor. You had immigrants coming in. You were blaming them for the workers, not feeling that they were enjoying the prosperity of the nation, which they weren't. But I think to some extent what's disrupted is I don't understand. When I read the other day an article that more people now would be worried about their kid marrying outside their party than they would about religion or race. I mean, That's how li- can li- that life be? Has changed. Please. I know. I mean, it just, it, some things happen where the identity with your own group and it has to do with the way the political system is structured. It has to do with the money in politics. It has to do with the congressional boundaries. It's people living and only talking to people that they're used to. Mm-hmm. They've now segregated themselves in, in cities or rural areas. And that the television is, is cableized and there's the social media is fragmented. And the things that used to draw us together, I mean, when FDR gave one of his fireside chats everybody in the country, eight out of ten, are listening on their radios. It's a collective experience. Saul Bellow said you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night and you could look in the window and see everybody looking at their radio. And you could hear his voice coming out on the street and you could keep walking and not miss a word of what he was saying. So President Trump has has tweets which can reach that many people, but it's an individual experience to read his tweet. It's not collective the way it used to be. And that's what we're missing, I think.
1: And. Often presidents, the time they would speak and explain a complicated policy would often be around when we're facing conflict or a major national security crisis. We learned about withdrawal from Syria and possibly Afghanistan through Twitter.
2: That's right. And that's a problem because, you know, Americans, for instance, when they're trying to think about the world or about a, an unpopular decision a president makes, a president really should spend some time explaining it. I think of Lincoln, for instance, when he was running for reelection in 1864. And his advisors said, I think Doris will concur on this one, cancel the Emancipation Proclamation because a lot of people think that it is extending the war and you got us involved in the Civil War actually to unite North and South, not to liberate African Americans. And what Lincoln could rely on is the fact that he could explain unpopular decisions. So he went to the voters and he said, you may not like this Emancipation Proclamation, but look at it as a necessary war measure. When I unveiled it, about 100,000 African Americans came from the South to the North. They're now working hard in our Union war effort. If I canceled it, they might not do that. We might lose the war. One of the most important things you need from a president is the ability to not only make tough decisions, but also to be able to explain it to people so that they feel in- included. A tweet will never do that.
1: We seem to be asking this question of what is an American value worth fighting for, and we're not necessarily in agreement on what the American values are right now.
8: But I think some of that intractability, that since we're frozen in these two camps, uh, really is technologically driven at this point. It doesn't come uh, from technological change, but just thinking about the impeachment question, the Blasi Ford Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm divide it was, was in some ways a dress rehearsal for yeah. an impeachment conversation, mm-hmm. right, where people just sorted themselves out into their conservative and liberal camps and you could just follow that, who you yeah. sort of believed, yeah. which I, think, I assume would map pretty well onto the yeah. likely response to any possible impeachment proceedings. And that political division between conservatives and, and liberals who are asked to believe in fundamentally different values and not asked to think about what one another's values are and what the shared values are what? was built by some very cynical political consultants in the 1970s and 1980s who wanted to get voters to the polls using right. uh, emotionally charged life or death, death issues that were constitutionally weak, so the sort of abortion-guns schism of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, either if you're a conservative, abortion is m- murder and guns are freedom. If you're a liberal, abortion is freedom and guns are murder. And this mm-hmm. it's all life, it's all the death or freedom. And uh, sorted people out very calculatedly uh, for decades. And just when they were done with their work, social media, more or less, emerged. Mm. And now all that is done by automation. Mm. Really, we're in a political machine of a new generation of machines, where we are sorted. Uh, Polarization is is done automatically, and it's very difficult to get out of that machine. So
1: connect that idea to impeachment, as Jill was referencing there. I mean, you're talking about the strategy of how this might play out in a future uh, Congress. What did we see happen with Clinton there? Because it's often referenced that the Trump camp is modeling the Clinton strategy sure. on how to handle this. In
9: some ways they are, right? What Trump is going after the investigator in order to discredit anybody who comes after him, right? That Mueller is, uh, is, and his angry Democrats are all in a witch hunt against me. Well, the word witch hunt were used in 1998, usually not by Clinton. He usually left it to others to do that. He was a little more subtle about it. But the effort was the same, to discredit the accusers and to make sure that anything that came of it was partisan. The Democrats wanted to make this partisan just as much as the Republicans were willing to make it partisan in 1998, because the Democrats knew that as long as it was partisan, it wouldn't succeed.
10: Mm -hmm.
9: And uh, because you couldn't get two-thirds vote in the Senate. They were willing to take the, the vote in the House, which is essentially the indictment, as long as they could win the trial in the Senate. And so this is If you're going to head down the same road, now you can make the argument that the crimes here alleged are much different, of a different category, that the, um, the volume of them may be different. Uh, but the issue of division, the issue of how we interpret those crimes is still pretty much the same.
1: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. It was a good conversation with all of you. We covered a lot of territory. Sure <laughs> yeah. We had a lot more. <laughs> um, but I want to thank all of you. Michael, Doris Kearns Goodwin, of course, Peter Baker, and Jill Lepore.
4: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to a sleep number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep Number Beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number.
1: Joining us now is Gail Smith, president and CEO of the One Campaign, an organization that lobbies governments and businesses around the world to help end poverty and disease. The One Campaign has a famous founder, of course, Bono, who is the lead singer of U2. But before she worked with a rock star, Gail was the head of USAID and served as a top advisor to both Presidents Obama and Clinton. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thank
10: you so much for having me.
1: I think this is a great opportunity to talk about some of the underreported stories Mm -hmm. um, and need out there. When you are trying to fight disease
10: and poverty, where do you find the most need right now? The most need is actually occurring again in Africa. We had seen tremendous progress. But when you look at countries the size of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Nigeria, we're seeing increases in extreme poverty. Uh, but we're also seeing it all over the world. Africa is our main focus. Africa is your main focus. And when you mention disease, we are seeing a new
1: Ebola outbreak yes. in the Congo. I know you were very involved when you served in the Obama administration with Indeed. trying to
10: contain it. What's happening now? Unfortunately, there isn't near enough attention to this one. Right now, it's still an outbreak, but it's killed over 300 people. It's in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is not a terribly stable country. It's not well governed. So there's some real risk that it'll spread. And I'm quite concerned that it hasn't risen to a higher level of attention uh, on the world's agenda. Because as we know, these viruses don't pay attention to borders and they move very quickly. It could kill a whole lot more people. You've
1: also been saying there needs to be more attention to the AIDS crisis. You know, many people right. think we've kind of moved right.
10: past the
1: crisis point. And you're saying, no, don't no, look away.
10: What's really interesting is that I think a lot of people feel like we've succeeded. We've won that fight. And in part, we've made huge progress. The world joined together and pushed back against this epidemic with great success. But now what we're finding is almost a complacency. It's like, well, we fixed that. We've done that. We don't need to worry about it. There are still 1,000 girls and young women being infected every day. 1,000. 1,000. And as long as we're moving faster than the virus, we can win the fight against AIDS. But if it starts moving faster than we are, we're in real trouble. And the world is not paying attention. There have been proposed cuts to the PEPFAR budget, the AIDS budget here in the United States, and we can't afford to get behind or the virus will win. And as I say, thousands, 7,000 girls a week.
1: One of the things that your organization does is try to lobby, as we've said, but both sides of the aisle. And Mm -hmm. you've had some success. I think this is interesting here because we hear from the Trump administration consistently that they want to cut back on foreign aid. And Many people, that's appealing to them, that Mm -hmm. idea, spend dollars here at home. Don't send them abroad. But Congress has stopped some of those cuts. How did you get that to happen?
10: Well, if you look back over the last 15 years, a really interesting thing has happened. Democrats and Republicans have joined together to support massive HIV-AIDS spending, uh, maintaining a robust foreign aid budget, supporting the U.S. Agency for International Development, food security, power, and just recently, a bill called the BUILD Act that provides more investment capital that passed in seven months at a time that I think we all know is pretty partisan. And as it turns out, the, the beauty of this issue is whether your issue is national security, our economic interests, or the expression of our values, there's a way in. And we've just got a history now of Democrats and Republicans joining together over the last two years, for example, to push back against and restore cuts in the aid budget. It's been a great thing. One of the things we
1: just heard from the Trump administration was the first kind of shaping of an Africa policy. Mm -hmm. You don't hear them talk about the continent very often. And Ambassador Bolton mentioned it in the context of a sort of fight for influence between China and Russia. You heard and saw the First Lady travel to the continent as Mm -hmm. well. What does that mean for some of the causes that you want people to pay attention to?
10: Well, I think it remains to be seen. I think that when someone of prominence, of high visibility, pays attention to Africa and these issues, it's a good thing. It's something we can work with. I think the challenge will be whether or not there are real resources behind stated commitments. Our aid budget isn't nearly as big as people think it is. Some people think it's 10% of the budget. It's a tiny percentage.
1: Less than 1%.
10: Exactly. But those resources matter. So it's not enough to say we care about this. We're for development. We want to see Africa prosper. We need to invest. And at present, we're not looking at the increase in resources we'd like to see, but we're certainly going to push for that. And how are you going to do that in the new Congress? I think part of it is engaging new members, uh, along with a lot of longtime friends. The One Campaign's been around for 15 years. So it's got a lot of friends on the Hill, but we work very closely with new members. Uh, There are a lot of champions of this account from among retired military officers, for example, with whom we work, who make the case as Secretary Mattis did, that if you're not going to provide funding for the civilian budget, I'm going to need more bullets. That's a very powerful argument. There are people of faith from across the spectrum that support this budget. So our task will be to work with an array of people who agree on just one thing, that this budget's important, it matters to America, it matters to other people. And if we can all agree on that, we'll work together to go get it. Well, some rays of
1: sunshine as we had strangely yes but welcome and it's good to highlight them gail thank you thank you
10: so much we'll be right back
1: that's it for us today thank you for watching we want to wish you a very happy new year and until next week and next year for face the nation i'm margaret brennan today's guests were alabama republican senator richard shelby Montana Democratic Senator John Tester, and Gail Smith, President and CEO of the One Campaign. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow... Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at
0: wondery.com/survey. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here,